You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here at Calvary this morning. We got all the Christmas stuff going. We're really trying to get in the spirit of it. As uh, I appreciate that. Three people who like Christmas. All right, very good. No, you missed it. That's it. It's over. Catch us next year. So, all right. Well, once upon a time, my wife and I, before we had kids, we went, uh, we were uh, out of town. We were flying back. Uh, we were on a fr- flight from Atlanta to Fort Lauderdale. And when we got home, uh, we were very excited to get home. The downside was we did not have seats together. We were separated by about five or six rows, uh, which once again did not work out too bad because I got an aisle seat, which is what I prefer. And my wife, on the other hand, was in a bit of a tough situation. She got stuck in a middle seat with two very large men on either side of her. The guy behind her was about seven feet tall and, uh, I mean, was really a big guy because every time she tried to recline the seat, it just couldn't. Like, there was mass that was preventing it because the guy, he's just a really big guy. Um, so it was, she kind of had to sit straight up and kind of boxed in. And then whenever the, we hit some turbulence, the, that big guy behind her would grab the seat and he would start shaking the seat as she was, and he's like, uh-oh, uh-oh. And so anyway, you can imagine the, how that is on a two-hour flight. So we land and people are, everybody's deboarding and um, my wife and I meet up and uh, she's like, you know, she tells me everything I just told you. Like, the flight was miserable. And she's like, and then she says, how was the flight for you? And I'm like, oh, it was great. Actually, the seat next to me was empty. <laughs> what? She says, why didn't you tell me that before we took off? We could have sat together, and I could have been spared the misery that I just told you about. And, and I was like, hey, don't blame me. That was your seat. It's not my fault you didn't enjoy flying the friendly skies. Those are the rules. And um, now I felt like I had explained this very logically. And if you've been married for longer than, I don't know, four or five minutes, do you think that conversation was over? No, it was not over. It was not over for several months. And uh, why? Because citing the rules... When you're t- <laughs> citing the rules, when you're talking to your wife, doesn't end well. Have you, have you learned that, right? It just doesn't, right? And, and uh, like I learned several things that day. And one of the things that I learned is that you can't have love when you're quoting the rules because love always requires more, right? Think about when you fell in love, you didn't just do the things that were required. You did something for your wife. And then you know what she did? She's like, oh, you shouldn't have. And that's right. I shouldn't have, but I did anyway, and that's, that's part of it, and it's like, you didn't have to. Love is expressed. Love is not expressed when you're doing the minimum. Love is always expressed when you're going above and beyond what it is that's required. In fact, the Apostle Paul, as he's talking about this on, on once again, a much bigger scale, he says it like this in Romans chapter 13. He says, oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is saying that if we simply loved, the need for the law wouldn't even have to exist. But see, the thing is, is that love never does less than the law requires, right? Love always goes beyond. That's what the writer of Hebrews is going to be talking to us in our study today. And if you're just joining us, we're so glad you're here. If you've been with us for a while, we're really glad that you're here because we've been studying through the book of Hebrews, which we've been saying is the most theologically dense book in the New Testament. It was written to a group of Jewish Christians going through a difficult season, asking the question, if God loves me, why is life so hard? And the answer to that question is this very eloquent and theologically dense letter that serves as an encouragement to do the one thing that will help when you're going through a season of difficulty, which is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And throughout the book, the writer has been telling us that Jesus is better than anything else we could put our trust in. And we've been saying this for the last couple of weeks, that whenever we hear that, we think, yeah, Jesus is better than any of the bad or sinful things we'd want to put our trust in. And the reality is, is that it's not just the bad stuff. He's saying Jesus is better than any of the other stuff, better than all the uh, religious traditions and religious people and religious positions or religious activities, all of that. And that's why when he gets to, he, sa- he talks about through, through the first seven chapters and he gets to chapter eight. And he says, this is the main point of the things that we're saying. And he begins to unpack the idea of the old covenant that God established with the people of Israel, that the people that were getting this letter of Hebrews, they were very familiar with this covenant in Judaism that was something that was preparing us, preparing them for the person of Jesus. If you were with us last time in chapter 9, we talked about the writer drills down on this idea about Judaism being an example, preparing us for what Jesus would ultimately bring. And now in chapter 10 uh, is where he talks about not just the old covenant and Judaism being a picture for us uh, as he set, talks about the sacrifice, Jesus being the sacrifice for sins, but he talks about the theme of this chapter is really about how we're able to draw near to God. Because Judaism uh, or any other religious system, drawing near to God isn't something that you were simply able to do, right? In, 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 in Islam, Allah is completely unknowable. Right, that's, that's Muslim theology. Allah is completely unknowable. So drawing close to God isn't really something that you can do. Uh, in Hinduism, Brahman is completely unknowable. Uh, Buddhism, which really has developed into a religion, it was really more of a variation of Hinduism, but not to complicate matters. But in Buddhism, there really is no God. There's only an eightfold path that ends the cycle of reincarnation and reveals nirvana to you. Judaism presents a God who loves the Jewish people and wants them to be a light to the world, but the sins of the people separate them from God. So what God does is that he establishes a system of sacrifice to deal with that problem, but it's not a long-term solution. The coming of the Messiah was the ultimate solution to the problem of sin. So when the Messiah, Jesus, comes into the world and then he dies for mankind and rises from the dead, Now, he gives every person the ability to approach God in a way that was previously impossible. And here's why this is important, is because God being approachable reveals something about who God is and it reveals who you believe God to be. If you believe God is totally unapproachable, when you 
sin or fail or fall, you will run away from God, not towards him. If you believe that God is approachable and loves you, then you will mess up, sin, or fall short. It doesn't drive you away from God. In fact, what it does is it simply necessitates your need for him. And what God wants you to do is draw near to him, and he's clearing every possible roadblock that would keep you from him. And that's what we're going to spend our time looking at today. And so we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 1, and here's what we read. It says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with the same sacrifices which they offer year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is, impo- it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. If you pause there and give me your attention. First thing I want you to know is this about drawing near is that I can draw near to God because Jesus made a way. Jesus made a way. Uh, I know this sounds elementary if you've been a Christian for a while, but it's really not because we, we say things that we don't totally understand. So what I mean is this. Um, if you were asked the question, why did Jesus have to die? If you've been a Christian for a while or you grew up with some kind of... Um, church understanding, you would say, well, Jesus died for our sins, so God could forgive us. And, but then if someone asked the question, but why? I mean, we forgive people. Why can't God just forgive us without someone having to die for that to happen? And well, what, you know, what is the answer to that? And sometimes that's kind of where we're like, well, I'm not really sure. And, and so the issue is, and so let me answer the question for you. The, the answer to the question is that God doesn't forgive like we forgive. Because when we forgive, we are not trying to be just in our forgiveness. We are trying to be loving. It's like if someone is driving drunk and hits your car, and maybe you or someone in your family is injured, right? And then that person gets arrested. And then the court case happens and you go there and you say, hey, but I want you to know I forgive you of what you did. And you know what happens? Let me t- well, let me tell you what doesn't happen. The judge doesn't say, oh, you forgave them. All right, well, case dismissed. Let's all go home. Right? That's not how it works, right? Because your decision to forgive doesn't cause the government to drop the charges because you found it in your heart to forgive. Why? Because their goal isn't forgiveness. Their goal is justice. With God, there's a twofold goal, the goal to be loving and the goal to be just. And so, and that, by the way, threading that needle is not easy. In fact, it's incredibly difficult on the part of God because God is both loving and just. In fact, in in 1 John chapter 1, one of Jesus' disciples, the disciple John, uh, he wrote 1 John. It says this, it says, if we confess our sins, Here's what God does. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Two things that happen, right? He's faithful and just. You see, you and I forgive arbitrarily. That is, we forgive who we want, if we want, when we want. But we want God to be just, and he is. And if God is going to be just and forgive me, he has to forgive you. And what would happen if God only forgave certain people? 
I mean, we would cry outrage, right? That's not fair. That's not just. But what God does to make sure that there is absolute justice, here's what he does. He sets the highest possible standard for justice. He says the standard is perfection. But the good news is he doesn't leave us there. And even though perfection satisfies, and by the way, everybody falls, right? We've, everyone has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And then the Bible also tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And, and um, well, that's the first part of the verse anyway. You see, making the standard perfection satisfies the justice of God, but there's another element of God's character that we have to understand, and that is God's grace. Because although God's justice demands a standard of perfection, what God does in his grace is say, hey, I'm going to send my son to meet the demands of justice. You see, sometimes we say, well, we want God to forgive. Well, I want God to forgive the good people. The problem is we're deciding who the good people are. I mean, and so God says, I'm going to decide what good is. Here's, here's what constitutes good. Be perfect. And so you can't be perfect. I'm going to be perfect for you. The writer of Hebrews is saying this. He's saying the sacrifices that were made every year were simply a shadow of the good thing that Jesus was going to do to allow us to draw near to God. That's why he says in verse 3, he says those sins were a reminder every year that sin had not been dealt with. I mean, think about this. I mean, how many of you are married? Can I ask that? All right, a lot of you. Very good. Um, I want you to think about your wedding anniversary and what your wedding anniversary means. Now, your wedding anniversary is probably more important than your wedding day. And I know that sounds weird because you can't have one without the other. But um, Now, I want you to think about what happened on your wedding day, right? You wore a tux and you swore you could look just like James Bond. Every guy thinks that. And you didn't. But anyway, we'll just leave that as it is. Um, but you probably looked better than you have in your entire life. And then you stood at, at, at the altar and you saw the most beautiful woman in the world walk down the aisle. And for whatever reason, she decided to be with you. And, uh, and I say that because I have officiated, goodness, hundreds of weddings in my life. And I have never seen an ugly bride, ever. Every bride is stunning. I've met many ugly wives, but I have never. <laughs> that joke always gets me in trouble. Uh, <laughs> but I've never, I, I've, every bride is totally stunning. I mean, it's like you don't believe in miracles. You should come to a wedding sometime. Uh, but, <laughs> but you both looked better than any, than, 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 right? Same thing for me. I looked better than I, I, I ever did at my, at my wedding. And, and so, and then everyone that you know bought you a gift. And then after you got dressed up and had the thing was about you and then the party was about you and then everyone uh, had bought you a gift and you went on a completely unjustified vacation. Um, but see, your anniversary is different. Your anniversary every year is this reminder that we kept the vows we made to each other. It's not just we survived and kept the rules. No, it's so much bigger than that. It's that we have grown in our love and we did more than was required. The writer of Hebrews is saying every year, 
they would offer a sacrifice to show that dealing with sin just wasn't done. It was a reminder that God was going to do something in the future that was far above what the rules would require. And then Jesus comes along. And look, here, look what he says in verse 5. He says, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Therefore saying, or previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified or set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Pause and give me attention. What does that mean for us? Um, It means that we can come to God freely and frequently, no matter what's happening. This is why something like communion is so powerful. Because just like the sacrifice was looking forward to God's redemption every time we... um, experience communion. It is us looking back to the work that was done. And, and, and listen, the, the key is really this, is that a lot of times people think that God loves them because they're good and they're like really trying to be good. But you know, God loved you long before that. God loved you before you even cared about keeping the rules. In fact, in Romans chapter five, um, it says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrate his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. What does that mean? Um, Here's what that means. It means that we love people at their best. If I can go back to the wedding illustration that we talked about a minute ago, right? You put on a tux, you got a haircut, she spent the equivalent of a car payment to do her hair and makeup, and... When you saw her, of course you said yes. Of course. Of course she said yes. But see, and and that's the amazing part, but that's not when God chose you. We said yes to each other when we were at our best. God didn't choose you. God didn't, Jesus didn't die for you when you were at your best. Remember six months after the wedding when he would only wear sweatpants and showering became optional? And you were like, at your wedding day, you're like, I'm marrying Brad Pitt. And then six months later, you're like, I didn't marry Brad Pitt. I married his brother, Armpit. And, uh, and, and, and she didn't have, six months later, she didn't have the hair and makeup team. And she's, wearing, she's got like cream all over her face and wears this giant robe and flip-flops. And, and, and li- like, listen, that's when God picked you. Not when you were at your best, long before you were serving him. And why is this important? Listen, it reveals how much God loves us and that there is nothing that you can do to make him love you less. And so we can stop trying to earn God's love. You've already got it. And and you had it long before you were trying to stay off the naughty list. And listen, so if you live your life based on the reality that God is for you and ready to work on your behalf, If you call on him, listen, you will desire to draw near to him in everything. My friends, that one truth can transform your life and set you free from all this guilt and, but I've got to do, listen, all of that will set you free. But he goes on, um, and if you check out verse 19, 
He continues. So in light of all that, he says this, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. If you pause there and give me your attention, the second thing I want to tell you is that I can draw near um, not just because Jesus made a way, but because others encourage me. Now, there's something huge that's happening here, and I want to talk about it because it's easy to miss if you haven't been following kind of the meta structure of Hebrews. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why uh, if you've been with us every message, you're like, I know the book is about people, these Jewish Christians going through a tough time, and they're, they're saying, if God, if, life, you know, if God loves me, why is life so hard? Like, the reason I keep saying that, and I've said it every single week of the study, is I'm trying to give you kind of the overarching theme, because if not, sometimes we get kind of lost in the weeds, and, and we don't realize what's happening. There's something powerful here that's being spoken in these uh, verses. So if the first seven chapters of Hebrews are about how Jesus is better than anything else, And chapters 8, 9, and 10 are about how Jesus is the perfect high priest who offered a better sacrifice in a better tabernacle. Now, in verse 19, there is a shift that takes place that's going to be from here through the end of the book. He says this in verse 19, therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest of all. Now, if you've been with us in some of these Hebrews messages, or hopefully all of them, then you know that only the high priest can go into the holiest of all or the holy of holies. So the question is, why is he encouraging us to go into a place that only one person in Judaism could go into, and that only one day a year? Because he's making a point here that for the rest of the book, here's what he's saying. It used to be that you could only watch others do ministry now Because Jesus has come and he's a different type of priest, now you can enter the holiest of all and draw near to him because we are the priests. We're the ones called by God to do the kingdom work. In fact, the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, said a similar thing. He said it this way. He said, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, this idea in theological terms is called the priesthood of all believers. And, and this idea was revolutionary it, because that's not how Judaism or any other belief system worked. Every belief system other than Christianity operates be, that there is a special person who contains special knowledge and only they can lead you to God because only the special person who has the special knowledge can serve God and everybody else has to watch that person. Christianity comes along and says, hey, there's only one mediator, only one go-between between God and man, and that's Jesus. And throughout the ages, people wish they could serve God and do something meaningful for him. And they couldn't because they weren't part of the right family, weren't part of the right tribe. Then Jesus comes along and establishes a new way, a better way, the way of everyone being a priest, everyone using gifts, talents, and abilities that benefit everyone. What does that mean? And what does that mean for a church like Calvary? It means three things. Here's the first one. It means that we acknowledge where people are. 
That means we aren't trying to be a hammer and view every problem as a nail. That is that we, what we want to do is look at what would serve people and help them grow. It's when the writer says uh, here uh, in this passage in verse 24, he says, let us consider one another. That phrase consider is, a, is a, this uh, one Greek word that means this, examine closely. That is that you know the problem, you know the person and the problem so you can serve them well. And the goal is to put the people with the right gifts in the right positions so that the people that they're serving can grow the most. When I was uh, finishing college, uh, when I was getting my theology degree, and I was an intern pastor at the church, that, the only church I'd ever been a part of before coming here, and um, they, they had this whole internship program for young pastors, and so I was part of it, and there was me at one of the, and so they paired us up, and one of the things that they had us do was they had us we had to serve in every ministry in the church, and the church had a lot of things going on. And so one Sunday, they were like, hey, you guys are going to teach in children's ministry. And so this is the one time I have served in children's ministry, and you'll know why after. Um, but it was me and this guy named Mitch, who I still keep up with. He's an awesome guy. And so myself and Mitch, we got 20 first graders. And so being the teacher and also being about 25 years old, and I don't know if you know this, but when you're about 25, you know everything. And give a guy who's 25 years old a theology degree, I don't even know how my head fit through the door. Um, and so, anyway, I'm walking in, and um, I say, all right, I'm like, Mitch, I'll do the teaching, you help the kids color. And uh, so that was, that was how I, I was rolling. So I get, to the, I get to the front, and I gather all the kids around, and so here's my opening line to kids that are six years old. Okay, who here knows where Asia Minor is? Nobody. I'm like, okay, all right. I guess there's not a lot of biblical scholars here. Okay, Asia Minor is in modern-day Turkey. And then the kids got excited. They thought they were getting a snack because I said Turkey. <laughs> and, so, and, I, and, and so anyway, when they found out they weren't getting a snack, all the kids just walked away. And, and I'm like, no, wait. And so, so Mitch... Uh, was so nice to me. He steps in. He goes, all right, Bob, I'll handle this. You pick up the crayons. And uh, he gets all the kids together. And I'll remember, there's this passage out of Acts chapter 16. I still remember the story. I still remember him teaching it. And uh, every time I read it, I think of that day. And so we, he gets all the kids together. He picks out these kids that are all going to play roles in the story. It was amazing. By the end, I was taking notes in crayon. I mean, it's so good. And so... And here's the point. Just because I'm the teacher doesn't mean that my teaching gift works in every environment. That it's not just gifting, but it's gifting and calling that need to match. And when we acknowledge where someone is, that is that your gifting in God's hand has so much potency to help someone in their moment of trouble. And so that's the first thing we consider. We examine closely what your gift is and what is the ministry that needs to take place. The second thing is, if you're a note taker, that is that we encourage people as to where they need to be. We encourage people where they need to be. And, and what it says is, uh, he says we need to, uh, and he says this again in verse 24, he says, let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now, that the term love is uh, this word agape, which is a selfless God-type love. Um, good works is this Greek word named uh, this Greek word kalos, which means it's something is good because it's wise or it's beautiful. And so, but the key to this, 
of something being loving or something being good or something being beautiful is that we stir people up to this. And that word stir is an irritant. It literally means to incite or to provoke. Um, it's, it's the idea of, I want you to think about sandpaper. Sandpaper that's rough, but isn't it amazing that you take a piece of wood and you take something that's really rough and that thing that's really rough creates something smooth. And, and what that means is, is that you and I need people in our lives who love us enough to tell us what we need to hear, not just what we want, what we want to hear. And here's how, um, and by the way, if you're playing the role of sandpaper, because every time people hear, so like, so you gotta, someone's got to tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear, so people perk up, and they're like, oh, good, I've been meaning to like drop a bomb on somebody, you know, and it's like, um, if you're playing the role of sandpaper in somebody's life, it means that you need to consider how you approach that person so that they hear what you say and the heart behind what you're saying. It. And the implication is that there is a relationship there. And by the way, here's what I know to be true. If you're married, you are married to your sandpaper. Uh, if you are not aware of that, you are. The problem is, is that we have a tendency to resent it. Don't resent it, embrace it. Your spouse knows you better than anyone else, loves you more than anyone else. But by the way, if you're going to approach your spouse, you've got to know the how and the when. A lot of spouses just say, well, I'm just going to tell the truth. And it's like they blow their spouse away and they drop this bomb and all that's left after the conversation is just a pair of shoes with smoke coming out of them. And uh, that, that's, not, that's not the way to do it. And that's why he says this other thing in verse 25, which is the third point, And that is that we, uh, it means we model where people need to go. In verse 25, he says this. He says, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That the, the Greek word for assembly is uh, episunagogue, which is where we get our word, or the, the English word synagogue. But he's not just referring to any gathering, right? A concert is a gathering, but it's not a synagogue, right? Going to the movies, that, that's a gathering, but it's not a synagogue. It's the difference between a bag of marbles and a cluster of grapes. A bag of marbles have no connection to each other. But a cluster of grapes are connected because they have a shared vine. And this is where you find the person who's going to tell you what you need to hear because we're connected together. Um, and by the way, and, and that means, and, and I talk to people and they'll say like, well, you know, I, I attended Calvary and, and it just, I don't know what happened. And, um, and I see people at Publix um, and it's always weird if they left under strange circumstances because I'll see them and they'll like jump into the frozen food section uh, and like, and then you open the door like, hey, can you hand me one of those? Thank you. Hey, so what happened to you? You want to come out so we can talk? And, uh, and, and the reality is, is that like being part of something connected like, like a grape is to a vine is not like, oh, I pop in sometimes. Like every once in a while, I, I'll get this, someone will reach out to me and they're like, hey, I've been attending Calvary since the movie theater. Now, we, we left the movie theater, I think it was 2006. So that's like 14 years. And I've never seen that person in my life. And I'm like, you've been attending every week since 2006? And they're like, well, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, so you've been here. Like, it's like saying, you know, I've lived in North Carolina. Like, I stayed there one night you know, in 1997, like, but doesn't make me a resident, all right? And so, but the point is this, 
is that if you're going to be part of something, there's got to be a connection. It's getting involved, getting to know people and being known. And this is where, look at what he says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. This is the opposite of sandpaper. The Greek word there is the word parakleo, which means to come alongside and help. It's the opposite of sandpaper. This is someone who comes along to comfort. And you need those people in your life too. And that doesn't happen by, and my point is this, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens when you're intentionally looking to do life with people who are gonna help you get to where it is that God ultimately wants you to go. He goes on in verse 26. This is where we're gonna wrap it up. He says this, for if we sin willfully, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which devours the adversaries. Anyone who rejects Moses' law dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose will it be of those uh, thought, who thought worthy who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant in which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now if you pause there, third thing I want to tell you before we close, and that is I can draw near because I trust God. Now, if you've been with us throughout the beginning of this study in Hebrews, I've told you that there are six warnings in Hebrew. This is warning number five. And it's a powerful warning against turning back. Now, in this context, these believers uh, came from a Jewish background, were under persecution for their faith in Jesus and commitment. And there was this temptation, as I've talked to you. And the temptation is, man, do I just go back to the old ways, the old offerings, just to make life easier for myself? That's not the temptation for us. The temptation for us is a little bit different. Instead, in our culture, the temptation is to kind of go back to the old ways before we came to know Jesus, to kind of just go along with culture and just adopt the popular positions to make life easier because, hey, man, being a Christian might hurt your career because being a Christian might hurt uh, friendships or relationships. And, 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 I, and I see this happen all the time with Christians, uh, with relationships is that Christians will compromise their convictions just to be with someone. And so I was talking about running into people at Publix. And so about a year ago, uh, I, I was at Publix. I saw this person who used to attend here and I said, hello. And, and then I say what I usually say, uh, which is like, hey, whatever happened to you? And then they gave me some lame reason as to why they left. It, it was, didn't even make any sense. And, and it didn't, I don't know why it didn't sit right with me, but, and I don't always say this, but I just, he's like, well, you know, this. And so, and I just said, why don't you just tell me what her name is? And he, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm like, come on. The, reason, the real reason you stopped attending, just tell me her name. And he's like, well, who told you? Nobody told me. I just, this isn't my first rodeo. I was born at night, just not last night. And, uh, and, so, and so anyway, and so he tells me, uh, her name and that she's not a Christian and he felt bad because he knows it's not God's best for him and he knows it's not what he's been taught. And here was this, this is the part that really broke my heart is that um, he was miserable. And, and, and once again, and the issue wasn't this. The issue wasn't, well, well the, you know, he just made a mistake. Yeah, we all make mistakes. We all sin, right? And if you aren't sure if you sin, talk to your spouse. She has a running list going. Um, uh, or he has a running list going depending on where you're at. And so, but the problem is this. 
is that sometimes, here's what we do, we give up to get something that is less than God's best. And this is why this warning is so powerful. It's not that uh, God doesn't love you if you mess up. It's that sin messes up your life. And, and the point that he's going to make in a second is you've just, you've come too far. You, you've, you've, you've done all of this. You've seen God do all of this stuff in your life. You've sacrificed. You've grown. You've come way too far to give up now. And that's what he says in, in verse 32. He says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle by reproaches, tribulations, and partly because you became companions with those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. The writer is saying this. He's saying, you have suffered, and you've grown, and you obeyed, and you watched God work in your life. Like, now isn't the time to shrink back. Now isn't the time to compromise. Now isn't the time to lose all the ground that you've gained. This is the moment to press forward and trust God because God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that's what he's going to start pressing uh, in our next time together. Because you don't have to be perfect to experience the blessing of God in your life. You've just got to be someone who is seeking God in your life. Because if you're, like, if you're here and you're saying, I don't feel close to God, I'm going to tell you something. He didn't move. And that means we need to make some choices that draw us back to him. And this is where communion can help us. It's this physical moment where we draw close to God and we remember what he's done. It's that saying, God, you have kept your covenant. You have uh, the vow that you made, you, you've, you've kept it. And this, I believe, can be the moment where we call on him and begin our relationship anew. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward. They're going to hand out the communion elements. And I'm going to invite you to hold on to them. We're going to partake of them together. But communion can be this reminder, this moment, that long before we were trying to serve God and walk with God, Jesus did this for us. And he was willing to prove his love before we even cared. If that's true, how much more now when we do care and we desire to walk with him? So as they hand out the elements, Pastor George is going to lead us in song. Down on my knees once again Needing your love again Desperately longing to be in your presence. So remind me that you overcame. Remind me that I'm not the same. Cause you gave up everything, Jesus. You took all my shame. Oh my shame Because of the blood that was spilled You're not leaving me behind 
was meant to kill You're my Savior Jesus King forever Because of the blood that was still You're not leaving me behind You traded your life for His will You're my Savior Jesus King forever. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. He goes on and he says, in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that promise that we can remember. Your amazing love, your grace that is so great and a mercy that we need in time of need. Help us, Lord, to draw close to you. Your your word tells us that if we will draw close to you, you will draw close to us. So may that be the reality that we experience from today going forward. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.